Today's read, A Moment of Silence, Midnight Three by Sister Soldier, Chapter Five, Tetris. Their side room investigation pit was still empty, except for me in cuffs, seated in the chair and the decaying burger on the table. The police detectives probably went to reshuffle their deck and would come storming back in here with a different approach. It didn't matter. As I drifted off into a half-sleep, I suddenly realized that my mind had been measuring up the murder and the steps I took immediately afterward, as well as which tactics and strategies I should and shouldn't use now. So focused on that, I didn't focus on the reality the impact or the results of my having entered Midnight Wash, that laundromat. And now I reflected clearly. Now I concluded that this investigation is not about the homicide I committed. It was about the drug den that I'd unknowingly entered to write a letter to Uma and to wash off the evidence of the murder. Unusually sharp, usually, I didn't pick up on what my young life in Brooklyn had already schooled me on. Any empty business is a front for some illegal business like a corner grocery store with very few groceries on the shelf and no everyday customers or a specialty shop whose window displays and decorations never changed because what's in their windows ain't what they sell in. If I had lived in the neighborhood the laundromat was in, I would have noticed, but I was just a man on a mission passing through. And now that I think about it, the three machines in a row that had a sign saying that they were out of order could have had something big with high street value stash inside. Cash, drugs, guns, whatever. The whole switching of the exit signs and locking and bolting down the doors like that wasn't a crazy fucking fire hazard should have tipped me off. If one of their enemies set that place ablaze, they would all be trapped. And what about all that bullshit about the red bag? If carrying the red bag meant no man, no beast, I touch ya, no street cats or cops, in other words, would touch me, that had to mean that the cops and the dealers were working together, and what they had in common was the red signal and the contents of the red bag. What about the barefoot women who never opened the door even though they had to have heard the fight and the commotion? Were they also locked in? What else were they concealing and doing? Were there any men behind that door with them? Now that I was alone in the room, I began to see some of the pieces of the setup. The red flamingo was their lookout girl, but she was a weak link in their chain. She was their untrained, trusted girl soldier, although I didn't know why any man would have his woman as the face of his dangerous, illegal business dealings, surrounded by other men, blood or no blood relation. Glad I didn't fuck her. I didn't desire her or feel tempted by her. She wanted the D so bad. 
if I was a weaker man, she would have had me off guard and half naked. After the stroking, I'd be soaking in my own blood when her man's men came dropping down from the opening in the ceiling like spider assassins. There's a difference between men who are believers and men who are not. Believing men don't take whatever is being offered just because it's available. The believers believe that there are three people in the room whenever any unmarried man and unmarried woman are in a room alone, the third one is the devil. Believing men restrain first and resist and select and take women as wives wisely with all of their senses. Our reward is peace of mind, peace within our family, and also Allah's mercy and protection. There's a difference between niggas with weapons and trained fighters, armed or unarmed. No matter how much attitude or grimy looks or slick talk or anything an untrained nigga has, and no matter if he's holding a stockpile of weapons and ammunition, a trained warrior will disarm and disable or dead him in seconds, and everything he has or had becomes mine if I want it. It stinks. Hours later, the morning after the murder, two police in plain street clothes, wearing their badges like necklaces, entered the room. It was their beef, stinking up their windowless side room. Now, rotting meat mixed with the smell of their coffee and sugar donuts and the residue of their cigarettes and a trace of alcohol on at least one of them. I had my head down on the table, not asleep anymore. My eyes were open, and I was listening with my mind alert. Calm now. My thoughts dropped down rapidly, then shifting right into place. Like Tetris. Wake up. We don't sleep, you don't sleep either, one of them said. But of course, I knew they had slept. Why else would they leave me sitting in the chair for eight hours? Seated straight now, I put my blank face back on. Get Officer Darby to escort this perp to the bathroom. Fucking stinks in here. Smells like he shitted in his diaper. In the bathroom built with cement cinder blocks and no windows, I was about to handle my business. First time in my life I'd ever been in a public bathroom with other men who were not there to handle their own business, in their own stall or individual urinal. These cops were here to watch me. Bet you didn't know you have to ask every time you want to go to the potty and pee-pee, one of them joked. If you don't cooperate, you'll be doing this all day, every day, for the rest of your life. He exaggerated his threat. Still cuffed, I was standing, still adjusting, in a room where there was no way out except through the front door, in a heavily armed police precinct where these two uniformed cops could have just posted at that front door and waited for me to finish they chose 
to enter with me. One of them was walking in and out of each stall collecting the toilet paper. If you want tissue for your ass, you gotta open your fucking mouth and ask me for it, he said, juggling the rolls, dropping one or two and leaving them on the floor. I didn't reach down for it. And oh yeah, I forgot, you don't have a name and you can't talk, he said sarcastically. Go ahead, take a dump. We ain't got all day, he watched. Must have been some twisted pleasure for him to see if I could manage in the bathroom cuffed. As I walked in a stall, he ordered, Leave the door open. I pulled down my jeans and eased down my boxers, and when I was done, I realized I couldn't wipe my ass while cuffed. He was standing in the stall with me now, laughing. Hey, shitty ass, he said. Need some help? Ask me for it. I didn't. He uncuffed me, but stood in the stall immediately in front of me. I'll let you wipe your ass if you ask me for the tissue, he smirked. I didn't ask. I stepped out of my jeans and removed my boxers and used them to wipe my ass. I threw the boxers in the toilet, same as though they were toilet tissue. I flushed with my foot and didn't pay attention to the toilet clogging as I climbed back into my jeans. Now, me and him are face to face in the tight stall. Don't you dare glare at me, he said. Hands, he ordered, and cuffed me. I waited till he stepped back out. He did. I moved past the cop to use the sink to wash my hands and even wash the shit off the cuffs. You should have emptied out the soap, too, his partner said, laughing at his failed attempt to get me to break my silence. Escorted out of the bathroom like a toddler, I listened with my brain and not my heart as they talked dumb shit. Fucking animal. I'd put a bullet between his eyes if he ever glanced at my wife. The cop who'd stood in the stall with me said to the other, He has a wife, I thought to myself. I pity her. She probably respects her husband, the police officer. She probably believes he's out serving those who need help and protecting those who need to be rescued. She probably cooked him breakfast this morning, admiring him, and gave him a kiss and a lunch before he left while not knowing he's just a fool who spent his morning on a black man's D. This is how they break men, I thought to myself. Being cuffed and trapped was expected, but what they kill you with is what no decent men would ever do or ever expect to be done. It's the extra shit that has nothing to do with being questioned or with being charged with a crime or even with being sentenced or with serving time as a just punishment inside the still stinking side room. A detective spread some photos on the table. By now, I had observed that the detectives were more focused and serious than the regular uniformed cops, yet all cops are cops to me. These are narcs, I thought to myself, drug detectives looking 
for drug dealers, drugs, and information leading them to a bust. I was clear now, but one or more of them might be a drug dealer himself, I thought. A dirty cop pretending to be a detective while dealing drugs on the low, or at least by protecting the drug dealers on the low. Particularly, drug dealers on Red versus Team, the ones carrying the red bag, I said to myself. All that's required here are your fingers. Sit your jaws jammed shut. Point out which man or which men in these photos you recognize. Smartest thing you can do for yourself is to separate yourself from these guys. Give them up. Cooperate with us. And you can walk out of here a free man soon, he said. In the photos were four different dreads and one Caesar cut, all dark-skinned and Jamaican. I recognized two of them. The first was shotgun. The other was AK-47. The other two I didn't know. I figured it was Redverse and one of his lieutenants and maybe another one of his brothers or even his business partner. Neither me nor my face responded to the photos. You could move the photos around, put them in the right order for us, the detective said. The bigger the boss, the bigger the bang, the better the bargaining chip for you. Your freedom is based on this negotiation. I didn't speak. The officer who was trying to do all the convincing continued as the other detective's face and body grew more and more impatient. He stood stiff, fingering his holster. The first detective threw a small pad and a piece of pencil on the table. Give us some names. Write down the names of even one of the guys you know. His street name, name his mama gave him, whatever. But it better be right. Pull a fast one and I'll have you serve all of their time put together. I can do that, you know. He was leaning on the table now where I was seated. His facial expression was serious angry and frustrated I knew the routine I knew the routine he was playing bad cop, good cop (laughs) I wasn't playing the bad cop puts the fear in a prisoner and the good cop poses as a reasonable ally who the prisoner can mistakenly trust in and bargain with stand up the bad detective yelled, not giving a fuck about who could hear him. I stood, a tough guy. He took off his gun and handed it to his partner, like he wanted me and him to shoot a fair one. There is no such thing as a fair one between a cop and his prisoner. The cop is hands free and the prisoner is not. Even if I defeated the cop using only my trained feet, even if I knocked him out using the metal cuffs I was wearing as a weapon and banged him at a point on his body that I had already studied, even if I headbutted him into unconsciousness and I could do all that, I knew if a man in custody, a prisoner, moves one muscle in his body, a cop is authorized to kill. And this detective wanted to kill somebody. He threw his best shots to my stomach, 
didn't like not seeing the look of pain on my face and began slamming his fist into my sides. I felt it. I didn't react. His partner pulled him off me and pushed him outside the door. Now, I was supposed to believe the good cop is my protection. I don't need it. I don't believe it. It was all a show to me. Knowing they got no kind of charges they could stick on me, hadn't seen or caught me with any drugs, weapons, or even cash. I did a breathing routine I learned in my training to shift the energy around in my body after the the detective attacked me. The quote-unquote good detective stared at me, but all he could observe was my silence. He walked out saying, I'll give you more time to think. Choose yourself or choose them. He pointed to the photos. Three detectives entered two hours later. Two familiar, one not. One was carrying the Sunday edition of the New York Daily News. Where did you drop the package? The unfamiliar detective asked me. I'm not no fucking mailman, so I didn't answer him. The unfamiliar cop laid his newspaper on the table. I took a good look at him. He was the same build as the foot cop I saw posted on the corner late last night. The same height and frame, I was sure. He saw me exit the laundromat carrying the red bag, I told myself. He must have also seen me drop the letter in the mailbox, but he couldn't have seen me clearly from across the street where he was posted on the corner in the darkness of midnight. Was it the mailbox? He asked with an urgent tone, ignoring him. My eyes closed in on the daily news headlines, one word in big, bold, black block letters, execution, one big photograph, and it was me. I moved my eyes from it. Do you think we can't open the mailbox and look inside? My mind is speeding. My face is blank. I'm thinking he was definitely on the corner last night. I'm guessing he was the extra dirty cop in this setup. He saw me carrying the red bag, but he also saw me set it down pull something from my back pocket and drop something into the mailbox and then walk away without the red bag. If I would have held onto the bag like the red flamingo suggested, he would not have tipped off the cops who swarmed on me at the subway. Maybe I had confused him by both carrying the red bag and not carrying the bag till I got off the block. Maybe he thought he fucked up and lost the trail of the drugs. My mind moved to the letter. Could they really open the mailbox? The detective is bluffing, I thought to myself. It was past noon. The mail had to have been collected already. They're looking for drugs, not mail. Maybe they had already opened the mailbox. If they did, they already knew there were no drugs dropped inside, at least not dropped by me. Even if they opened it already, I told myself, the mail still would have got delivered long as Uma received my letter, I'm good. <sighs> Sunday, I thought to myself. Maybe they don't collect the mail on Sunday. It's America's day off. In the east, where I'm from, Friday is the day we go to mosque.
for Juma prayer. Friday and Saturday is our weekend, and Sunday is our first day of the work week. Answer the fucking questions, fuckface, the bad detective screamed, playing his role. I sat silent. My eyes were back to the photo of myself executing the enemy last night on my Brooklyn block, a two-second hold, then my gaze was back onto the wall in front of me. What do you think those guys are going to do when they find out you handed the drugs to the government? The mail is federal property. What were you thinking? How much was in the package? A kilo? Two? Enough for you to pay with your whole life, I bet. More money than your life is worth. These guys are going to kill you. They'll put a price on your head and some crackhead on the street will blow you away for two rocks. The bad detective was leaning into my face and holding one of the photos up to try and extract fear in me. The Daily News cover photo of me looked like it was shot from both behind and overhead, maybe from a news helicopter. But I didn't see or hear no copter last night at the block party. The stage, the thought shouted on the inside of me. A photographer could have caught the shot from the stage, which stood high over the crowd. Alhamdulillah, the photo did not capture my face, only my back, my physical form and clothing, and my extended arm, my gloved hand, holding my black millie. Your loyalty to them is going to backfire, the good detective said. Cooperate with us. We can protect you. Give us the right info, and we can even relocate you so that you'll never run into these guys again. Funny how he thought I was the dupe in this scenario. He thought I was protecting some drug syndicate because I didn't know any better. Actually, the good detective was the dupe from how I see it. He was protecting the dirty detective who posed as a uniformed cop posted on that drug block because he, the good detective, seemingly didn't know any better. The words the dirty detective was saying revealed what his main focus was. Where are the missing drugs? He was concerned not because he needed to seize them and turn them into the precinct. He was concerned because he was the real drug dealer or the overseer and protector of a drug syndicate who lost track of the package, probably considered the worst possible fuck-up in their line of work. Now, nobody could get their payoff, at least not from last night's take, because their drugs were missing. Somehow, somebody G'd off, I thought. Whether someone in Red Versus Crew had the drugs and was acting like they didn't, or someone who was supposed to deliver the drugs to them stole the product while pretending that they delivered it and that I stole it. Or even the cops could have one of their guys steal the product. I didn't know. I didn't give a fuck. I didn't have nothing to do with drugs. Don't use them. Don't sell them. But I could see now that I was somebody's come up, somebody's fall guy, and the diversion. All in one. We'll take your fingerprints and match them with the package. Once we book you and you're in the pit with some of these other guys, you're done. Game over. Finished. The dirty cop threatened. 
I knew there was no package in their possession. Not with my prints on it. That's why this bullshit, boring-ass precinct interrogation was ongoing. They made a huge police scene in the train station last night. They thought they caught me red-handed. They made the mistake. Now they had no evidence and no explanation. They needed me to do their job right now. They needed my mouth to snitch on the hustlers. They couldn't do their job. They weren't intelligent or clever or even capable of what they call good police work. And what about the fact that at least one of them in the room and probably a few of them in the precinct were part of the red laundry bag crew? They had to get some sucker and lock him up to cover up their own hands. They needed to make it seem like they wanted to stop the hustlers from hustling when they actually needed the hustlers to hustle to get their food, their cut, which I was sure had to be more than their little paychecks ever paid them. Smart ass, you think we got nothing on you? We've got your laundry bag that you left beside the mailbox, he said. His hands were leaning on the tabletop. His fingers were pressing down hard and turning pale pink with stress. I knew the fact that they had the bag didn't mean shit. I was wearing gloves when I carried it that short distance. He couldn't see my black gloves on my black hands last night. And I had trashed the gloves in an outdoor trash can before I entered the lighted subway system immediately before my surprising arrest. There were no prints on the bag, at least not mine. I saw the newspaper caption beneath the cover photo. Brooklyn youth executed in a crowd of hundreds. The bold assassin caught on film in the above photo. State senator outraged. Story on page three. Bad detective flipped the table, pushed me out the chair and onto the floor. I didn't resist. His swiftly, he swiftly grabbed the chair I had been seated in and got ready to crack it over my head. The dirty detective laughed. The good detective intervened, stopping the bad one by separating and distancing him from me. The dirty detective threw the chair into the wall. Yeah, this is personal for him, I thought. Maybe the missing drugs under his watch would catch him a bullet in the back of his head. Take a break, the good detective told the bad one and the dirty one. They both slammed out the door. Good detective picked up the chair. Sit down, he ordered me. I sat. Then he picked up the table. Next, he picked up the pad, pencil, and newspaper. Lastly, he placed all of the drug dealer's photos back on the table. Last chance, he warned me. I'm sure they're preparing to move you. I can stop them from putting you in that cell. I can even let the judge assigned to your case know just how helpful you were to us. If you make the smart choice, think about it. He left. Cuffed, I was still able to slide the Sunday paper over so I could read it. Senator Montgomery, a liberal Democrat, who supports legislation for minority youth recreation, was rebuffed last night when an event he organized and sanctioned went haywire. 
It was a perfect day of sunshine and summer heat, a lineup of stellar performances and the excited crowd of thousands enjoying and cheering for hours ended in a chaotic and tragic melee. New York Police Department says groups of youth gangs began firing gunshots randomly into the air and others threw bricks and bottles at the police from the rooftops. In the confusion, one man focused and then executed another with a 9mm, the same weapon used by the police department, and in the presence of the Housing Authority Police, the NYPD, and hundreds of spectators, including the state senator. Despite the strong police presence, the assailant somehow managed to escape into thin air. The weapon used to murder Lance Polite, age 19, has not yet been found. The police conducted a full sweep, arrested 89, mostly juveniles, and the homicide investigation is ongoing. Community parents are outraged. However, only 18 parents showed up to protest in front of the 73rd precinct late last night. Many parents interviewed last night say their children are minors being held in question without parents or attorneys present. The district attorney has issued a statement raising the capture of the murderer to top priority. He said, the state of New York is populated by millions. 95% of them are law-abiding good citizens. We will never and have never tolerated murder. And we won't rest until the assailant is apprehended, tried and convicted of this violent, unconscionable, heinous crime. If I ripped the cover photo of myself out of the newspaper and laid it across my chest or taped it to my forehead, it would probably be the only way the stupid cops and dumb detectives could capture me. I smiled, even though I was in the same room with them and one of them actually had my photo in his hand on the cover of his newspaper. They were that slow and blind. I knew I could get away from these narcotics detectives. They had nothing drug related to hold me. They were betting I'd break down from their high pressure performance and their bluff. I knew I might even get away with the murder that I had planned to take responsibility for, but the good detective busted back into the room, interrupting my thoughts. Stand up, he yelled. He was fired up about something. Now he had a style change. Holy fucking, he grabbed the Sunday Daily News off the table. He was staring at the front page. He took a quick look at me and began flipping the pages. I counted. One, two, three. He was reading. Then he looked my way again. He walked towards the camera and stood in front of it like he was blocking it from capturing any images. He waved me to move toward the back corner. I did. He moved behind the camera, shouted, What the fuck? and kicked the camera from behind with full force. It didn't fly off the tripod, but it did topple over. He kicked it again like it was a soccer ball, then picked it up from behind, pressed a button on the camera, and removed it from the tripod. He shot out through the door with it in his hands. I didn't know what was happening now. He left without giving me one of the commands they seemed to like to give. I was still standing in the corner. Before I could do anything else, he rushed back through the door without the camera. 
Suddenly, he grabbed the vacant chair from under the table and jammed it underneath the handle of the door. He yanked the table from its position and moved it to the side, away from the darkened window. Over there, he pointed, speaking not aloud, but only going through the gesturing, ordering me to move. I did. He moved the chair I had been sitting in for hours to the side where he had placed the table. He struck the same pose as if he was the executioner in the daily news photo. Then he nodded his head for me to do the same. I didn't. I just stood, my expression blank. I was realizing what was happening now. This idiot finally somehow put it together that it was me in the photo, or at least he suspected that it was me. He wanted me to pose so he could be sure. I'm not no fucking model. I don't pose. He was just staring at me now, not like he was actually looking at me, but was in some deep thought. Put your hands down, he shouted aloud. But I was hands down and cuffed, still standing. He ordered me to sit by pointing to the chair that he had moved into the corner. I sat. He scribbled on the notepad and handed me a piece of paper. I didn't reach to accept it. I looked down. He had written, don't talk. I read it, but didn't touch the note or react to his strange message. Why would he be instructing me not to talk when I had not said one word since I was cuffed at the train station? He put his whole hand over his face and ran it through his hair and back over his face again. Crouching down suddenly, He removed his right shoe, stood and smashed himself in the face with his shoe heel. After a pause, he snatched up the newspaper, folded it, and shoved it underneath his armpit. He began putting everything back where it had been moments ago. The table, the chairs, the photos, the pad, the pencil. He crumpled up his don't talk note and stuffed it in his pocket and left. Walk, he said to me when he returned. He led me out of the room down some corridor. I thought I was heading back to the holding cell. A few stray cops watched the path we were taking. None of them were the same ones from earlier today. A couple of them paused their own steps to observe us instead. One of them smirked at me. I figured they all suspected now that I am the executioner in the news photo, not the drug dealer they was thirsty for. My face remained blank. The good detective opened the door and nodded me in, then closed it behind us. There was nothing but walls, no cha- no table or chairs or cameras or windows or clocks or photos. He reached into his pocket. Out came tape and gauze. He began wrapping his own hands like a fighter does before he puts on his boxing gloves. You and I are on the same side, he said to me. I gotta beat you to convince them that I'm part of their team, he said strangely. So, you stay still and let me fuck you up for show. Don't you dare move, he said forcefully through clenched teeth. It's nothing personal. He punched me in the side of my head. Instant headache and a burning feeling. First time ever I let any man get at me like that. I had no idea what this had to do with murder. I committed or the punishment I expected. There'll be some pain and a little blood, but you're my guy, he said, punching me full force in my ribs. They got nothing on you. Believe me, it's better that I beat you than if I let them loose on you. He punched me in my jaw. I'm not going to hurt you. 
You and I are going to do great things together. He landed one in my stomach. I tasted blood in my mouth. He should have screamed. I wouldn't have had to make you bleed if he'd shown some fear and humility. He hit me again. I didn't scream. Good enough, he said, unwrapping his hands and pushing the used gauze and tape back into his pockets. Good boy, good boy, good boy, he shouted. Yet he wasn't talking to me. I was right in front of him, still silent, still standing. He walked out. I spit out the blood, needed water, wanted food, but didn't need it yet. Every few minutes, the door would open, but only enough for whoever to see in and not for me to see out. Then it would close. I was leaning on the wall, felt the side of my head swelling and the tightening of my jaw. car, just him and me. You eat pizza? He asked me. I didn't respond. He drove past a pizza joint, a regular dollar, dollar fifty place. He didn't stop, just drove around the side and then zoomed down the back alley until he was in back of the store. There was a heavy metal door, no knob or handle. Obviously, it had to be pulled or pushed open from the inside. He did a rhythmic knock. The door eased open. Yeah, yeah, he said to a fat guy wearing a greasy long apron. The guy didn't answer. Turning his back and walking in the opposite direction of where the good detective was leading me. Another back room with a table and four chairs, a tablecloth and no windows. Some shelves packed with huge cans of tomato sauce olive oil, jars of peppers, and sacks of onions, and sleeves of garlic. There were crates stacked to the ceiling with bottled water, soda, and juices. Grape soda? The detective asked me while reaching into the crate. I didn't answer. Probably not. Everybody else of your same kind chooses grape soda, so you probably don't want that. I told you. Me and you, we're friends from now on. You should stop that silent treatment bullshit and recognize who's on your side. He grabbed a can of Coke for himself, pulled the top and gulped it. He let out a foul-odored burp. Then he set his can down and removed his gun from the holster. Easy, I'm not going to shoot you. He used his gun to point out the small bathroom. Go, clean yourself up he said, referring to the blood he punched out of me. I was still standing there. Oh, oh yeah, we're friends, he said, putting his hand to his head like he had forgotten, but his gun was still in his hand. I'll uncuff you. You play nice, he said. I went to the bathroom hands-free. Leave the door open, he said. I did. I take it they all like to watch, or at least hear the sound of a man pissing in the toilet or taking a dump. Water going over my head and face and water in my palms naturally moves my mind to making prayer. However, I was bloody in an unclean space 
a single toilet bathroom with the filth of men impossible to ignore. It was not a praying place. Still, I washed myself as much as I could. I was thinking, but couldn't predict what exactly was next. Pizza, ziti, meatballs, the works, were delivered to the black room, to the back room, without me ever seeing or hearing him request or calling in the order. The aroma of oil and vinegar on a fresh green salad with olives and green peppers and a pile of onions, the scent of butter and oregano on Italian bread, and a small Italian feast was spread out on the table. Eat first. You gotta be hungry, he said. His gun was lying on the table where his fork would normally go, the barrel facing me. I waited for him to start eating and then figured if the food was poisoned, he wouldn't be eating it. Besides, it didn't seem like murdering me was his objective. He also did not make any threat over the food like the other cop did over the burger. Lastly, he seemed more worried about me trying to escape than anything else. He wasn't holding me into position by aiming his gun at my head. But he didn't know that whether he held me at gunpoint or kept his loaded weapon lying on the table facing me, I could easily relieve him of his gun and end his life. Murdering cops wasn't my objective, but he didn't know that either. Water first, plenty of water, and then I threw down the salad and next the pizza. I would have preferred peanut butter or chicken for protein and strength, but I was in survival mode. As he gobbled down the beef meatballs stuffed inside the thick white bread and smothered with mozzarella cheese over which he had added parmesan, I could see why most of these cops end up as sloppy fat asses. Here's the deal. I don't know what you did earlier yesterday night. He let loose a loud burp. But I do know you came out of the spot we've had under our surveillance for a good while. It's a major operation. Me, I'm a special cop. I guess you could understand me if I say it that way. Internal affairs. I watch over the officers in my precinct. So I got double duty, double the responsibility. I have to be the good narcotics detective who investigates all of the drug lords and teams. And then I gotta catch all of the cops and detectives who aren't good and who are not doing their jobs in the way I know they intended to do it at first. I noticed he described the dirty cops as though they were really good guys. He didn't call the dirty cops criminals. He leaned back. I'm gonna let you walk out of here. I'm going to pretend I didn't see that photo of you in the Sunday paper. I'm going to do what no officer who wasn't a special cop would ever do or could ever do. I'm going to let you get away with murder, he said, the wrinkles on his forehead deep and his face serious and stern. What you're going to do for me is step right back into your crew. Report to your bosses. Show them how I fucked up your face for remaining silent. Regain their trust and loyalty and work for me. It's a real job. 
You'll make real money. You'll collect information and feed it back to me, he said, staring into me for a reaction before chomping down on his meatball hero. I'm not looking for none of your little hand-to-hand friends. I'm looking for three things. The top-level dealers, suppliers, distributors, and any officers. Their faces, names, or better yet, badge numbers, who you might notice along the way who are talking, meeting, or even arguing or fighting with anyone from your team, he said, and then farted. What the fuck is that look, he asked me. That's the same smirk you made when you were reading the article about the murder you did. I saw your smirk, he said. That's how you told on yourself, he emphasized, getting more and more vexed. So now I knew that back at the precinct, he must have been watching me reading the article in their interrogation room through the darkened glass. I didn't answer back. In my head, I was thinking, this is fucking crazy. I didn't say one word to him or anyone else. This dude was trying to recruit me to be an informer on the crew I don't know, don't work for, and don't care shit about. There will be times when you'll wear a wire, he said, licking tomato sauce off his fingers. No one will notice it. We'll put it on your nice the first few times. After that, you'll know how to wear it right on your own. This way, we can pick up on conversations, keep track of your location, and even save your life if you're in danger. That's what I mean when I say, I'm your friend. You're my guy. He leaned back on the two back legs of his chair. I was solemn-faced. I wasn't responding. He brought his chair back forward. He grabbed a napkin and his gun. He was wiping his mouth with the napkin with the gun in his hand, giving me the understanding that it could accidentally go off at any moment. If it hit me, it was just a mistake, he would say. Or he would say that I lunged at him, tried to take it from him. He would say he was scared for his life. He would make people believe it. The authorities would back him up the same as if they were here in the room with only the two of us. I knew. It's a small stack of get-out-of-jail-free cards for you. If you get picked up, since you're my guy, we'll let you walk. You might have to show up in court, go through the motions, bam, 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 but of course you'll walk. You're on my team, and anything you do to further my goals was just that. You doing your job. He threw his hands up, clutching his piece, still in his right. You're not responsible. Done eating. I'm good now for at least 24 more hours, I thought to myself. I know you make more money with your crew than you could ever make with me. He brought both hands to his chest, gesturing. But you're gonna accept this offer to beat 25 years to life for the murder you committed, he said, attempting to threaten me with the murder I was prepared to confess to when I entered the train station on my way to turn myself in. 25 years to life hit my head and my heart hard. 25 years to life. There's no way any judge would give me 25 years to life for murking a sucker like Lance Polite the child molester, rapist, I said to myself. You got a pretty little girlfriend tucked somewhere, I'll bet. Right now, 
you make the money and she sucks your D. Go to prison, you'll suck the D. And she'll make the money, he said. I could tell. He had used these words on many men before he tried them out on me. I'm sure nine times out of ten, he broke them all the way down. One call to the 73rd precinct, he said, stone-faced, holding his Glock like it was a telephone, where that murder occurred, and not only officers, but their captain, the district attorney, your state senator, will be all over you. He stood. He began pacing around the table with his weapon on ready. He tried to make eye contact with me, but I didn't allow it. He kept walking around. Then he stopped right behind my back. I didn't turn, didn't flinch. I don't like dudes, civilians or cops or gangsters who pull their piece and don't fire. I hate a dude who keeps speeching with a loaded weapon in his hand. I don't respect that. If I pull it, I fire it till the deed is done. My silence, I know, caused the good detective's doubts and his threats and his offers to intensify. See, the thing about my offer, he paused for effect, either you take it or you get locked up for so long, you'll forget what your mother looks like, he said, moving his talk from my girlfriend to my mother. He was searching hard for an opening, a vulnerability, a weakness in me. So what's it going to be? You going to walk out of here a free man? Go home, get your D sucked? Return to your crew, make money with them while making money with me, or am I going to throw you back in the Plymouth, take you back to my precinct, let you spend some time with some good officers who have the hots for you and want to throw you a nice farewell party? After they beat the Christ out of you, I'll let them in on our little secret about the murder you did. I'll get all of the credit for making that one call that charges you with the murder. Then you'll be transferred to the 73rd precinct and the interrogation will begin all over again. He was standing with his arms folded now. He wasn't facing me. All I could see was his profile, but his barrel just happens to be pointed at my head. Faith, not fear. I thought of Naja, eight years young, my father's daughter, my Uma's only girl, my sister, my reason. If I were not a Muslim, a true believer, the good detective might have had me shook. If I was the average cat from the hood, he might have had me broken and wearing a wire and working for him. If I were not my grandfather's grandson and my father's son, he might have convinced me, but I am.